This is episode 250 of That Shakespeare Life. That Shakespeare Life is brought to you completely free by the support of our patrons. Access the complete back catalog of episodes and contribute directly to programming when you sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. Hi, I'm Chris Leffler, an ophthalmologist and the author of The History of Glaucoma and the forthcoming book, The History of Cataract Surgery. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. And if, let's say, there was a bad harvest due to the weather, perhaps excessive rainfall or excessive drought or excessive heat, or there was a a really nasty storm that blew down a lot of trees in the woods owned by the earl, then that manager would have to make a return, would have to say in those records why the takings, if you like, for that earl's property were down this year. So that's one source of incidental, if you like, weather records we can have. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Shakespeare mentions a weathercock in his plays, Merry Wives of Windsor, Two Gentlemen of Verona, and again in Love's Labor's Lost, which I thought was a kind of weather vane used for measuring wind direction. That's certainly how it's used today. During Shakespeare's lifetime, astronomers Tycho Brahe and David Fabricus kept daily weather diaries noting details like the rain, snow, and temperature for their respective parts of Europe. But these two astronomers were far from the only people watching the weather in the late 16th and 17th century. Other diarists would keep similar records, and from these kinds of notes, we learn a description of the weather on specific days, as well as exactly when and where major events like floods and even solar eclipses would have occurred. Since keeping data about the weather in the 16th century was happening before instruments like weather radar were in existence, it's fascinating to look back and discover how the study of weather and even weather predictions were happening for Shakespeare's lifetime. Here this week to share with us the details of meteorology for turn of the 17th century is our guest meteorologist and expert historian on weather, Martin Rowley. Martin Rowley is a meteorologist formerly with the British Meteorological Office, the UK State Weather Service, as part of his professional work advising both the British public and media outlets and subsequently in retirement, Martin researched and recorded a database of historic British and Irish historic weather events. This data is now archived with the British Library and the Web Archive Service. Martin joins us today to share with us some of the history about life and turn of the 17th century England, which we can glean from the details found in this research. Hello, Martin. Welcome to the show. Hello, Cassidy. It's lovely to speak to you. Who was it during Shakespeare's lifetime that kept weather diaries? Oh, well, now we're very interested. First of all, not weather diaries as you or I might understand them, or indeed as I uh, keep one still to this day. And I'm uh, well into my 70s now, and I've been keeping them since I was an early teenager. Um, so unfortunately, we haven't got nicely organized weather diaries day by day. And one of the main reasons for that is because we haven't got instrumentation. 
we haven't got the thermometers. We haven't got barometers. Thermometers, of course, measure temperature. We haven't got barometers to uh, measure air pressure. We haven't got hygrometers to measure relative humidity. And even uh, rain gauges weren't really standardized. So there was no real push for people to uh, set up a regime, if you like, of day-by-day weather recording. But it doesn't mean to say, of course, we don't know what the weather was like. And we have to turn to other sources. And they're fantastic sources. But broadly speaking, they're grouped into three types. Um, what I call the estate managers and the royal records. And I'll go through each in turn and try and briefly describe what each will tell us. Uh, second category would be seafarers. And the third category would be the country clergy. Now, back to the estate managers. Let me give you an example. Let's imagine where I live now, the Earls of Salisbury owned vast tracts of land. And of course, the, the Earl of Salisbury at the time wouldn't have wanted to manage his uh, estate on a day by day basis. He'd leave it to his factor or to his, um, to his other managers. Uh, but they would have to make a return to the Earl every six months or perhaps even every quarter. And if, let's say, there was a bad harvest due to the weather, perhaps excessive rainfall or excessive drought or excessive heat, or there was a, a really nasty storm that blew down a lot of trees in the woods owned by the Earl, then that manager uh, would have to make a return, would have to say in those records why the takings, if you like, for that Earl's property we're down this year. So that's one source of incidental, if you like, weather records we can have. The second category, seafarers. Now, they're fascinating, of course. The problem with seafarers, we at the time, as you and your listeners probably realize, we relied very heavily on coastal shipping to move goods about and indeed to move people about as well. Um, smaller ships uh, would not really want to turn out in something like a 30, 35 mile an hour wind, whereas the larger vessels would be quite happy to weather those uh, storms. And it's sometimes quite difficult to work out how small a ship is or how large a ship is, because from those records, we can then tell uh, how strong the winds on a particular day during a particular storm were. And a storm might cause lots of uh, coastal shipping to head for shelter, whereas the larger ships wouldn't bother so much with uh, with that. And the third category, of course, is our old friends, the country clergy. And um, they again didn't. They did later in the what should we say, late seventeenth century onwards. Yes, they did start keeping day by day weather diaries. But at this stage, they were making notes. For instance, again, I'll give try and give you a real world example for the time. Let's say there was an outbreak of what we would now know as influenza, and that caused a lot of mortality, but it was in the middle of a really harsh winter. Uh, they would have to make a record that they couldn't adequately bury people due to the fact that the ground was uh, very frozen. So it's those sort of records that we're looking at, uh, Cassidy, to fill in, to flesh out, if you like, our knowledge of the weather at the time. 
Now, you mentioned that there weren't a lot of tools available for measuring the weather, like a hygrometer and, and a rain gauge. But I know that Shakespeare mentions a weathercock in his plays, Merry Wives of Windsor, Two Gentlemen of Verona, and Love's Labor's Lost. And this reference, I believe, is to a type of weather vane shaped like a rooster that could tell you wind direction. So, Martin, was the weather vane one of the instruments being used to monitor the weather in the diaries you studied? And were there other kinds of instruments useful for collecting weather data in the 16th and 17th? century, even if they were different from the ones we have today? Okay, right. We need to go, uh, I'm afraid, a little little more history and go right back to the very early part of uh, New Testament uh, life. And we need to look into the four Gospels, and we need to go right back to the Last Supper. And I'll try and explain why we're going back to that time, because we need to understand why there are roosters on the top of some churches and some cathedrals. And I'm just going to read you in the language that Shakespeare would have understood at the time. For, in this case, it's from Luke, uh, chapter 22, verses 33 to 34. And uh, this is the interchange between Peter or Simon Peter and Christ. And Simon Peter says to him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee, both into prison and to death. And Christ returns, and he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Now, from that, the early Christian church, as well as obviously the symbol of the cross, adopted the symbol of the cockerel because it was uh, central to their faith. And churches across Western Europe, across Christian Europe, started to erect cockerels on the outside of their churches and sometimes inside. Later in the cent- later on, in about the ninth century, the Pope, this is Pope Nicholas, actually officially decreed that all churches should display uh, cockerels in some form or another. But at that time, of course, all our churches here in England were generally squat affairs. They were Saxon churches, if you like. It wasn't until after the Norman invasion of England, that we started to get in, uh, influences from the near continent, from the Norman lands in what we now call France, of course. And through the late Norman and early Plantagenet uh, era, we start to get both churches and especially cathedrals built with tall spires. As the builders became more and more confident, they started to put these great spires, especially on top of some of our uh, magnificent cathedrals. And because they were still under the uh, instruction to display a cockerel, and because, of course, they wanted to portray the fact that here was this spire pointing to heaven, why not put a cockerel on top of the spire? Now, you can't just put a plate in the shape of a cockerel on top of the spire without letting it rotate with the wind. Otherwise, it would damage the uh, cockerel and it would damage the spire. So effectively, we have the makings of a weather vane, simply because the cockerel obviously span uh, in uh, relationship to the general wind flow. But we need to understand that they weren't there to tell us what way, which way the wind was actually blowing. Obviously, as the centuries passed, then people did use weather vanes to, as we now call them, or weather cocks, to tell which way the wind was blowing. But of course, the ordinary country folk 
wouldn't really need a cockerel on top of a spire. They'd be quite happy to tell you which way the wind was blowing without having this uh, cockerel on top of the spire. So it doesn't actually help us a great deal that the cockerels were on top of the spires. It was just an added, added little bit of information that sometimes might have gone into the diaries. But unfortunately for me, people like me, they weren't used systematically to tell us from which direction the wind was blowing. And to answer the other half of your question, what other instrumentation? Well, there's very little, frankly. I did mention very briefly about rain gauges. We don't really sort out a nice way of measuring rainfall until a couple of centuries after the time we're talking about, a couple of centuries after Shakespeare's time. So to try and sort out how much rain fell during particular periods, we're reduced to things like people telling us how quickly the water butts filled up or how low the local village pond uh, uh, sort of drew, drew down or how fast the River Thames flowed. So we haven't re- we've got the weathercock, but unfortunately, it's not really there to tell us which way the wind's blowing. It's there as a symbol of the Christian church. So can we tell anything about how accurate their measurements were or when they were recording weather events? Are there, can you tell anything precise about how they're keeping those records? Well, the, as I say, the, unfortunately, it's, all, weather recording is almost incidental to the work that they're doing. We need, let's see, with end of the 16th, very early 17th century, uh, we're right in that changeover period between the times when the weather just happened, people accepted that the weather happened, and after this period, uh, the age of reason, when people started to wonder, well, if the church spire was struck by lightning, why was the church spire struck by lightning? They used to believe that it was God showing his displeasure at something that happened in that village or in the church. But after the 17th and 18th centuries, we started to get the scientists, as we would now call them, uh, reasoning out that uh, this no, that we can't have this explanation. It's all to do with charge separation between the cloud and the ground and within the cloud. We don't really have a reservoir of nice organized weather measurements that we can base all our subsequent uh, analysis of this period on, Cassidy. It's a lot like a, a mystery investigation. That's right. It is indeed, yes. Well, what about predictions? I know today we rely pretty heavily on checking the weather before we go somewhere to see if it's going to rain or it's going to be sunny. Was there anything comparable to that for Shakespeare's lifetime, or was it just luck of the draw when you left your house every oh, morning? Oh, no, no. Now now we really are onto a, a, an interesting area of, and we're into weather law and L-O-R-E. Now, weather law, Shakespeare would certainly have known about many of the sayings that had developed well before his lifetime. I'll give you a very simple one, a short-term forecast, the red sky at night, shepherd's delight. Now, that's mentioned in the Bible, of course, the red sky in the morning and a shepherd's warning. Uh, another one, this is for short-term forecasting, this would be mackerel sky and mare's tails make tall ships carry small sails. And that's simply a way of forecasting that because of the way the cloud looks in the sky, we know that that now, that that's due to a jet stream. At the time, they didn't realize that, but simply by observation, they knew that if the cloud 
at high levels was at a certain type. And they knew that within a roughly 24 hours, there would be quite a strong wind. But you're asking me really about much, much uh, more distant forecasting. And I'm going to refer to a book, if you'll allow me. And it's a book I've recommended. And it's by a gentleman who I used to know, Paul Marriott. And he wrote a book, which is about an inch thick, where he analyzed many of the weather sayings that we know today. I'm going to pick four out, but only deal with them very briefly, obviously. Uh, the first one is Candlemas. Now, Candlemas is uh, very analogous to your Groundhog Day. It occurs in very early February, February the 2nd. And there are many sayings due to Candlemas. And broadly speaking, what all of them say is if Candlemas is, is fine and relatively warm, then don't trust it because winter is going to have a second bite. Now, unfortunately, uh, my friend uh, Paul Marriott, he analyzed all these sayings, and Candlemas comes out as one of the worst of the lot. And in my view, and this is my analysis, uh, I think it's more a warning. You can imagine people at the time, especially younger people uh, living at this time, would say, oh, this is a nice day on February the 2nd, perhaps winter's over, and we can put away the thick clothing. In fact, as the older people around them would say, well, don't you do that because winter will almost certainly have another bite. And quite often that is true, but it's not strictly speaking a forecast as such. It's simply a warning that don't believe that just because Candlemas is fine and warm that the, the winter's gone and dusted. Next one is St. Swithin, which is quite a famous one, of course, 15th of July. And I noticed on uh, an earlier uh, podcast of yours, the St. Swithin was dealt with quite happily, so I won't again really go into that a great deal. Again, St. Swithin, unfortunately, doesn't turn out to be very good. The analysis is very poor. Uh, St. Swithin effectively says if it rains on St. Swithin's Day, that we're going to get 40 days of rain. Well, the analysis doesn't uh, bear that out at all. And it's simply the fact that at the time when Swithin's grave was moved, it just happened to be a very wet summer. And people interpreted that as the saint, as it was by then, was a bit angry. And so they, they managed to wrap that up into a weather saying, and they believed it, and people still believe it today, despite the fact that we can show that it doesn't really hold true. The other one, another third one, is Michaelmas, which, of course, is one of the quarter days, 29th of September. And there are a lot of sayings to do with Michaelmas. I'll just read you one. If Michaelmas Day be fair, the sun will shine much in the winter, though the wind in the north. In other words, a, a cool or cold winter, but a fine winter. If it's east, frequently rain long and be sharp and nipping. In other words, they're trying to say, Whatever the wind is like on uh, Michaelmas, that perhaps that carries on through to the subsequent autumn and winter. Again, you can. There is a very slight tendency for that to be correct, but uh, if you relied on that, you'd be caught out more often than not. The last one is St Luke's uh, Little Summer, and again, in some cultures, we know it as an Indian summer. And that's in uh, uh, the day itself, is 18th of October. And this is one that tries to predict what the weather's going to be like in the winter. Uh, if it's a fine summer, uh, then it, it 
perhaps the weather's going to carry on being fine for a couple of months. But again, it doesn't really hold true. It's a bit like Candlemas. It's a warning that just because you get fine weather in that midpoint of October, it won't necessarily carry on and give you a fine, um, dry and balmy uh, winter. So those are just four, uh, Cassidy, but uh, I could give you many more. We could probably spend the entire podcast doing those. We have the Indian summer one here, and I didn't realize right. that that was a bunch of places. But it, it's like a nice, it's interesting that there is some consistency where it kind of makes sense that they were using these particular places to to make observations about the weather, even if it's not consistent and reliable. No, no, unfortunately not. <laughs> now, I do know about major weather events during Shakespeare's lifetime were were recorded, and I was wondering if you could tell us what some of them were. Yes, really, we're spoiled for choice. Where should we start? Uh, I'm going to pick one out that is actually mentioned in Midsummer Night's Dream. Well, not mentioned, obviously, as a weather event per se, because Midsummer Night's Dream is set in ancient Greece. But it's generally thought that Titania's speech, if you like, uh, about the uh, adverse conditions during the summer were directly related to what happened in England in 1594. And what happened in England in uh, 1594, it it was a really very bad summer. Uh, Let me just read the uh, details. A wet and unseasonable summer, extensive flooding of fields, uh, loss and spoiling of crops across England. And uh, this caused a considerable loss of crops, considerable reduction in the income, uh, of people and a considerable uh, downgrading of the income of estates, of course, which is why 1594 has come down to us as one of the bad summers of that period. But if we go back uh, a little bit, I want to talk about very briefly again the, the most famous in our history, anyway, most famous event that's the Spanish Armada, 1588. Uh, July and August, of course, when the King of Spain sent his uh, uh, fleet up through the Channel, uh, intended to pick up an army on the uh, continental side of the Channel. But because of the contrary winds at the time, the unseasonable, as it was reported at the time, uh, weather, they couldn't pick up the army. And then the ships were driven all the way around the British coast, up around the top of Scotland, back down uh, to the west of Ireland. And at the time, of course, they believed that God had intervened and scattered the fleet. In fact, it was all part of this great change that happened at this time. We're into this period that we know now as the Little Ice Age. They obviously wouldn't have called it the Little Ice Age at the time, but it was a a most unusual period of very stormy uh, summers and uh, often desperately cold winters. And I did a little bit of a a summary for you of looking back just over Shakespeare's lifetime. And in that lifetime, we have no less than 14, that's one four, winters that we would classify as peculiarly harsh. If they occurred today, we'd have real problems in finding support for the community. So there are 14 in his lifetime. And... Nowadays, if we got one or two in the equivalent period, just over 50 years, then we would regard that as quite, quite amazing. The other winter is the winter of 1607, 1608, towards the end of Shakespeare's life. 
And uh, due to that severity, there were ships were actually stranded because the sea froze, and that's unusual, obviously. Because the sea froze, ships were stranded way out in the North Sea. They couldn't uh, come in to land their goods or indeed to take goods up. And there were ice flows in the Thames and the, the frost really dug into almost like a permafrost lasting well into March and April so that uh, agriculture was put far, far behind. So that, those are just uh, some simple examples. I could give you many more, <laughs> Cassidy, but I hope that gives you a flavor of the, the times that Shakespeare was living through. I had heard that the winters were harsh sort of repetitively in Shakespeare's lifetime, but I didn't realize it was nearly that many. And and I know that the Thames River is said to have frozen over in 1607. I, I don't know if that's that's true, but I read... That's that true. Queen, oh, wonderful. Well, the, yeah. I read that Queen Elizabeth had actually taken her sled out on the river that year. And so I wondered if that was anecdotal or if it had potential no, to No, no, no. That's, that, that's quite, but not obviously not in 1607 because she died there. Oh, yes. It was one of the earlier uh, um, earlier uh, winters, um, which I got somewhere. Well, that uh, reconciles just... things for me then, because it was all yeah. going together of she was doing That's this. Right. So it didn't just happen. It wasn't a one-off thing for the river oh, to no, have frozen. No, 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 no. It, if it had happened now, um, we would be in real trouble, frankly, with our modern uh, communications, transport, and all the rest of it. We'd be in real trouble trying to cope with the sort of winters that the people of Shakespeare's time would have coped with. Now, I wonder, are the weather diaries and, and the d- various records from the country clergymen, the seafarers and, and the estate managers and all of this that you're piecing together to sort of see what happened? Have, have you discovered any kind of patterns about how often the river would freeze or, or any kind of weather patterns that seem to repeat? Yep. Well, we'd, uh, I've already mentioned it, uh, the Little Ice Age, and uh, perhaps I just need to um, elaborate very slightly because uh, we don't want to bore too many people. But the, for meteorologists like myself, climatologists, this is a fascinating period because for a, a variety of reasons, we get, were going through a period of unusually cold weather relative to the values of temperature either side of this period, where there was a, a, around about the 1100s, 1200s, 13, early 1300s, it was a very uh, benign climate in uh, in lowland England. And of course, from the late 19th century up to the present day, it's also a very benign period. But after a short uh, warm period in the early 1500s, there was a dramatic drop in temperatures down to the almost, uh, frankly, birth of Shakespeare almost coincided with the temperature trace, if you like. And I know People are going to be saying, well, hang on a minute, we haven't got thermometers, but we can infer what the temperature was like at this time. And it reached its sort of valley, its trough, if you like, in the middle 1600s. It was a bitter period. It was a brutal period when temperatures overall were much lower than, for instance, we are used to. I've just calculated very quickly what that might mean. Currently, for instance, if... Here in central England, we would be disappointed if our summer temperatures didn't rise to a range of sort of 28 to 34 Celsius or in low 80s to around the 90s Fahrenheit. And the winters, well, we'd be unlucky if we started to get temperatures sort of uh, minus 8 Celsius, that's sort of 15, 22 Fahrenheit. Shakespeare's folk 
would be quite used to temperatures in the winter time getting down to minus 15 to minus 20 Celsius. That's between minus four and plus four Fahrenheit. And the, the summertime temperatures, well, they'd be struggling. If they went to 20 to 25, which is into the sort of 70s Fahrenheit range, then they'd think themselves quite lucky. They'd, they'd regard that as very good summer's day. So there's a dramatic change between the weather of Shakespeare's era and the centuries either side of the time he lived. That uh, that's just a remarkable difference, and I just—it's painfully cold. <laughs> of course, yes. I'm, from, I'm from Alabama. It doesn't hardly ever get that cold here for us. So, just hearing those temperatures makes me cold. Now, I know we would love to learn more about this topic and to explore this this history that we—I don't think many of us even realized was this fascinating, and that there was so much to uncover. I wonder if you could share with us some books or resources you can recommend we start with if we want to explore this further. Well, anything by one of the great researchers in this country, and he's recognized as a great researcher across the the globe, actually, because he didn't just concentrate on the British and Irish climate. He looked at climates all around the world. And that's Professor Hubert Lamb. He's no longer with us, but he wrote uh, several uh, interesting books. One or two of those are well worth uh, reading. One in particular I'd recommend is Climate History and the Modern World, which is still very easy to get hold of. Now, although it was based in the 1980s, 1990s, people would be quite surprised to just how relevant it is, including the early flowering of the global warming uh, saga. And through Lamb's work, you can then follow on and look at other references and pick those up and really get to grips with what was happening in the, con- certainly in the continent of Europe, the weather in the continent of Europe across these periods. The other book that I could recommend is one by um, a good friend of mine, Ian Curry. He publishes many books on local weather. One in particular is called Frosts, Freezes and Fairs. And you'll find a very good explanations and descriptions of the severe winters of this time that we've been talking about, Cassidy. Those are excellent resources. We will link to this as well as Martin's work in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you go there to find those. Now, Martin, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Right. That's fine. Now, I'm not sure how many people, I think it's probably known, uh, everyone will know J.R.R. Tolkien and The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien, of course, didn't just write Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit. He delved, and I use that word advisedly, into all sorts of uh, myths and legends, uh, particularly across Europe. And he left behind, after his death, a whole store of writings, which his son Christopher gathered together and published in a book called The Silmarillion. And I would like to take that book, uh, Cassidy, that would keep me going forevermore, The Silmarillion. My oldest son just finished reading The Silmarillion, and Ah, I can can tell you it would be an an excellent choice for your deserted island, for sure. So, Martin, what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? No great big project. What I do is I keep an eye on... uh, newspapers and old records, 
and try and relate those old records to the weather changes at the time. So for, I'll just give you very quickly a couple of local examples. We had a uh, in the late 19th century, there was a, a major loss of life on the local railway here uh, due to an unexpected fog. Unfortunately, two of the railway workers were killed, but it's quite interesting to look into the background of those sort of things. Another example would be back again in the middle part of the 19th century, uh, children used to walk long distances to get to our one school, which is here in our local village. And you can often pick out from the school record books just what the weather was like, whether the children were turning up with muddy boots, if you like, or whether they were bringing a lot of dust in to the uh, playground. And sometimes, of course, in the really bad and wet summers, especially in the 1870s, then they didn't turn up at all because the local small rivers were so swollen that these youngsters couldn't actually cross the river to get to school. So that's, that's my focus at the moment. I am excited to hear about the projects that you're working on because I know we have really appreciated having you here today and visiting with us to share from your considerable experience and research into the history of weather. It's been an honor speaking with you. Thank you for being here today. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Cassidy. If you like our show today, be sure to let us know about it. Please drop us a rating and a review on the platform you're listening from today. To access bonus history about the weather records, weather vanes, and major weather events that we mentioned today, be sure to check out the show notes. There's bonus history content packed in there, along with direct links to both Martin Rowley and the resources he recommends for you today, and even a few extra tidbits I found that I just wanted to share with you related to the study and history of weather in Shakespeare's lifetime. Find all these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 250. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP250. That Shakespeare Life is made possible by the support of listeners like you who sign up to be our patrons. That Shakespeare Life made a strategic decision not to have commercials on our show, and that was for the benefit of our listeners. We wanted to get you straight to the history. But of course, we still have to fund the show if we're going to stay on the air each week. So we turned to our listeners and asked you to support us by being a patron. As a result, we are growing our Patreon platform and are excited to be partnering with you to be reaching our funding goals. If you love the history you learn about here each week, and you just like hanging out with other historians and listeners who enjoy Shakespeare as much as you do. And if you want to have a direct contribution to our show by getting sneak peeks at upcoming guests, voting on questions that we ask on the air, listening to bonus episodes released only for patrons, as well as access to the entire back catalog of That Shakespeare Life right from day one, then you want to become a patron. You can find all of the benefits and sign up right now at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.